Welcome to Cangria, home of Canada's Korea media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And what a week. What a week. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. um, first of all, um, I, I believe we owe some of our listeners an apology. Oh? Uh, we didn't put a show out last week. Now, I am pretty sure I notified um, the stations that carry it, but I don't think I got round all of them. So we may not have uh, uh, been able to reach everyone. And some folks may have heard us uh, for a second time. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. just uh, odds were not in our favor getting a show together last week. Well, I mean, there is there is travel that involved multiple time zones involved. So yeah, the sometimes uh, sometimes it's hard to get things together depending on what's going on. Yeah, but I mean, ten years of doing this, once in a blue moon, not not uh, not too bad. All right, now it has also been one heck of a week in terms of gay news. Um, let's start off with, well, well, later on in the show, we have uh, a great interview lined up with an academic mm-hmm. who is looking into bisexual leadership. So we're actually going to leave that conversation for a little bit later in the show uh, right. as we dive into the topic at large. When we come back, there's a little piece about contextualization of privilege that I think we should uh, it'd be great if we can dive into into that discussion as well and identity yeah yeah but before we get there Toronto Pride was in the news although I'm pretty sure they would like you to not know that oh yes um in, in fact as an aside, I thought, oh, wow, this is pretty serious. They had their AGM last week, mm-hmm. give or take, uh, on the 25th. Now, Pride Toronto, why should we care about this? They are the largest Pride organization in the country of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they represent a lot of queer folks in Canada. When we think about the concentration of queer folks, uh, you know, disproportionately high in the mega cities like Toronto, Um for the queer community, very important. They are the biggest. Um, and yeah, so from accountability, we keep an eye on them. So they had their AGM. And during that AGM, they, I don't know if this was discussed. Uh, we weren't we weren't invited to the AGM. We weren't invited. We weren't invited. Yeah. But uh, we, will, we, will, we will be looking in. And I thought, oh, this is fine. AGM, let's see if they post anything about it. They've got a beautiful new website. I really like their website. And they've got a drop-down menu item called News. And I'm like, oh, brilliant. Exactly yes. what I'm looking for. Uh, yes. Coming soon. Coming soon, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it's now, you know, about a week after their AGM. It's a couple of weeks uh, after, since they announced, uh, well, a couple of months since they announced the theme for Pride mm-hmm. Toronto 2024, neither of which constitute news on their new website. So we will, <laughs> we will keep an eye out. But... There is news about Pride Toronto, whether the website discloses this or not. And that is the fact that uh, Pride Toronto, following Mm -hmm. very serious allegations of defrauding federal government grants, uh, allegations we actually, we had, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Tom something. Tom. Yes, I'll I'll pull up his last name. Professor Tom. Yes, as a, yeah, he is uh, a a historian, mm-hmm. um, but the the Pride Toronto certainly rumbled, uh, ruffled a lot of feathers. Now, some folks are thinking, okay, what happened? Like, why 
is this an issue at all? Um, now, Tom Hooper found his name. Hooper, there He's you go. An assistant professor in the Department of Equity Studies at York. Um, said and came on our show we've got we did a great interview with him uh came on as said that pride toronto uh essentially lied mm -hmm. broadly speaking you essentially lied in grant applications to the federal government now this included things such as saying oh these indigenous organizations that a lot of people have a lot of respect for they're on board with this plan yes third organizations no clue. The 519, the most respected queer organization, one of the most expected queer organizations in Toronto. They're fully on board with this plan. Also, no idea. They yes. had, uh, you know, essentially fake endorsements from organizations that carried a lot of weight uh, and certainly would have helped them to land several of these grants. Yeah. Uh, and so, that's, yeah. that's basically the story right there was that in order to get a lot of these federal grants, you have to basically put together a package, a proposal that says that you're capable of satisfying the uh, the requirements that are associated with the price tag and you get endorsements usually. And then you you get the grant and then later on you write up a report saying this is what we did with the money and this is how we were successful. And basically almost every single thing that they could fraud they they frauded. They they made up letters of endorsement. They made up plans that they never really intended to follow. They made up a lot of stuff, and uh, then they got called out on it. And uh, that that's the history. And the 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 update. Well, the, the... we're not we're not talking small change here. Whoa, no, it we're was, talking. Yeah, yeah. It was six hundred thousand dollars from the Department of Canadian Heritage in twenty nineteen for that Indigenous mm -hmm. Two Spirit Artwork Initiative. A yes. million dollars from Public Safety Canada in 2018 to look at community safety strategy. Now, if you can recall, we were mm -hmm. flabbergasted that a national community safety initiative would come out of one local pride organization. Yes. Um, and then they got 250000 from Canadian Heritage again to yes. build and develop bilingual tools. Now, after quite a kerfuffle and the ouster of the or, or the leaving of the previous executive director of well it, it's also worth pointing out by the way that there was a condition associated with one of those requirements that in, in the um in the package where they improve security what they were supposed to be doing is improving helping to promote and improve relations between the community and the police and it was supposed to be a nationwide thing and they basically said we're going to start by improving it in toronto and uh, they had to uh, let the Toronto police back into the parade. That was one of the conditions associated with that grant. And they just decided at the last minute not to. Now, a lot of people were saying, um, if you don't want to let the the police in the parade, that's kind of your business. You know, you are the committee. You're the ones who get to choose who does and does not get to march. But then if you're not willing to let them march, don't say you are willing to let them march and then accept big money from the government. Like that is, that's a lie. That's fraud. Absolutely. Well, the uh, Tom Hooper did attend the recent AGM, and it was during the AGM that uh, that Modest, the current executive director at uh, Toronto Pride, revealed that they are actually paying some of that money back. Yeah, like he says under pre the previous, you know, under the under those other guys, under those, the, you know, the the people before. Hang on, I can't speak to the past, but under under those people. Um, 
frankly lacked a lot of evidence. Now, KPMG did a review. It was not mm -hmm. an audit. They did a review of Toronto Pride and found that when Toronto Pride had said, oh, we have delivered X, Y, and Z, they couldn't really find the evidence mm -hmm. for X or Y and some for Z. Uh, that was essentially what Toronto Pride has said again. They were like, you know, our, our, our practices uh, around uh, providing uh, reporting and so on uh, was insufficient. And mm -hmm. they could not prove that they had done the things that they mm -hmm. would then paid by the government for doing, which mm -hmm. uh, has been called misdirection of funds, um, yes. has been called, you know, I'm sure there are more serious allegations that can be attributed to that. But what, what seems to have been failed to be mentioned here is yes. that the federal government wasn't just a bystander in this entire process. They didn't sit back and go, oh, well, it looks like Toronto Pride, which just fooled us out of, you know, a lot of money. Um, they've got, they can figure this out. We trust them. We'll, we'll, they'll solve their, all of these problems. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. The Department of Canadian Heritage, which was behind at least two of the grants, conducted a participant audit. They mm -hmm. did audit Toronto Pride uh, specifically around deliverables on these grants, um, at least one of the grants, and found that they were lacking. Yeah. Uh, which is unsurprising. Now, and to be fair to Toronto Pride, a lot of a lot of volunteer-based organizations and charity organizations overpromise and underdeliver. But the difference is that usually when they get audited, when people look into their practices, they found that even if they did a bad job, they did a job. You know, they 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 may have taken on they they may have bitten off more than they could chew. They may have taken on a project that their organization is not ready for yet, but at least they did a thing. And some of the conditions that were associated with Toronto Pride's uh, grant, there's no evidence that they even tried, which really does not look good. No, absolutely not. Now, really, this brings a lot of shame on queer organizations, one of the biggest in the country, mm -hmm. uh, and is now, well, I mean, put frankly, this is the harshest financial penalty that any mm -hmm. queer organization in Canada has ever had to pay, yeah, where they yeah. are now looking at paying back over $505,000. They've already forked over a hundred grand on that uh, to cover, uh, you know, um, pay, uh, payment, pay, payment back to grants where deliverables weren't made, as well mm -hmm. as the interest on that. Yeah, the federal government certainly took them to task. Um, so this, it's uh, worth noting, this wasn't, uh, don't get me wrong, I am sure that the current leadership of Toronto Pride and uh, the board of directors of Toronto Pride and the current staffing structure there, who are clearly had nothing to do with anyone who was there previously, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure they are trying their best. Um, but th this is an organization that frankly misled funders repeatedly. repeatedly so there is a serious issue there that needs to be dealt with and they're now paying back and they have another four hundred twenty thousand still to go mm -hmm. uh, so yeah it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact that has on the pride festival moving forward um it's ironic really that their theme is uh the right to be and they're existing and they're facing one that's really steep financial fine so we'll see we'll see how it all unfolds all right um any other comments on toronto pride and uh where they're now forking over the cash 
Well, I mean, whether or not this reflects on LGBT organizations in Canada, I think it also might be a reflection on uh, charity and not-for-profit organizations in Canada because they're you hear rumors about local organizations that are mismanaged. And I don't know, I, I, I would hate to see good organizations get swept up in sort of a, a massive audit checking that all the organizations are above board because audits are expensive and you have to do them. If you're being audited, the people who are telling you to get audited, they're not paying for it. They're telling you, you need to pay for someone to audit you or we're going to, we're going to have words. So I wouldn't want to see that happen. I just, I don't know. It's it's really kind of unfortunate that it came to this and what it could imply for either specifically LGBT organizations or just charity and nonprofit organizations in general. I hope it doesn't turn into anything. Absolutely. All right. Uh, just uh, after this, we have our interview with Tarlin um, as we discuss bisexual leadership mm -hmm. uh, in management. And before then, we've got Wasn't Easy by Becca Krokova, and we will be back my just after this. Set me back, and all of my dreams were slipping right through the cracks. It's like I'm searching for you in the mud. I'm digging holes only to watch them fill back up. And when the ocean pulls away from the shore, I spend the low tide. Trying to find what I'm searching for And nothing seems to go my way I see a train wreck coming and I can't escape Cause it wasn't easy
welcome back to Cancri, home of Canada's queer medium. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And we have not locked him in the broom closet for this interview, so we are very excited to have you do <laughs> your facial reaction to that. Well, normally I do these interviews solo, and I often would say that you're locked in the washroom, you're indisposed. We've oh, I see. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but no, on this occasion, you are joined us. Now, I am very excited about the conversation because we have been sort of pottering around this topic in a few different weeks of the show so i'm excited to have someone who's really diving deep into it we don't have all the answers yet but i think you've mm-hmm. gathered up the questions and that's half the battle uh Tarlene, why didn't you take a moment just to introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and kind of frame what we're going to be talking about today absolutely and thank you luke and sebastian for having me uh, my name is Terilyn Parr, and I'm currently pursuing my PhD at the Ontario Studies for Institute in Education at the University of Toronto. And my dissertation study is looking at how bisexuals disclose and navigate their sexual identities while they're in leadership positions in professional service um, organizations in Canada. And what really motivated me for um, to look into this was that when I came out in the workplace, there were a number of experiences that left me feeling a little bit uneasy about how people were perceiving me. Um, Some questions came up and comments related to um, my gender at the time, um, other things that made me feel sexualized. And I knew that there was this inherent opposition between how we think about leaders who are inherently supposed to be kind of desexualized people and a lot of the stereotypes and um, myths that surround bisexuality. And so I was kind of consumed with anxiety and fear that by being out as a bisexual, I might not be seen as credible or I was being sexualized. Um, And so um, like I do, when I want to know the answers to a question, I kind of dive into the books. And when I started looking into this, I realized that there really was not a lot of information out there about bisexuals' experiences in the workplace. Um, especially, which is surprising to me, especially given that bisexuals are actually the largest community under the LGBTQ umbrella, and there's the least amount of research. Um, And what I did find was that bisexuals often have very unique experiences in the workplace as compared to their um, LGBT, other people under the umbrella. Um, They have the lowest wages uh, as compared to any other group. They experience biphobia, which is obviously, you know, unique from other types of discrimination. And they do get a lot of feedback pertaining to their gender. And so I thought that this was something that was uh, really worthy of further investigating. So my main questions that are driving me are primarily for people who are out in the workplace. And you don't, you know, being out is kind of a continuum and it's kind of always fluid and shifting. But Um, How did you actually come out and how did you share that and who did you share it with? And then the other question is, how do you navigate that on a daily basis in relation to all these ideas that exist out there around leadership? Um, Because sometimes, you know, what I see in some of the literature is that uh, a lot of these ideas might seem conflicting, but we know that there are bisexual leaders out there um, just by virtue of the size of the community Um, But I'm not sure about you, but for me, I can think of a lot of gay and lesbian leaders, but it's it's a lot harder to think of bisexual leaders, uh, which I think is slowly starting to change. But um, hopefully this research will also shed some light onto how we can make that an easier and um, 
better process for people. I mean, I think the questions you raised were, when I saw this study posted by a friend of ours, um, I was very much pretty captivated. We love, we love a study here at mm-hmm. Queer. If there's mm-hmm. an academic study, we are, uh, we're going to dive into the, you know, the R score and, and, uh, really put our, get our fingers into it. But I think that this, broadly, it touches on a lot of other areas and topics that I think that uh, we, we've we sort of been skirting around. You know, we, we discussed the census, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the number of bi folks earlier, because when we were talking about the census in Canada, as well as in the US and the UK, which have all of our pretty recent census data, the number of bi folks vastly outnumbers queer folks. And, you know, we even talked a couple of weeks about a study that, that uh, you know, alludes to the fact that it's bisexual men that carry on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on account of gay men and, and lesbians not being physically able to make children. <laughs> you know, it's and there was, a, there was a study that was released back in the autumn, and I was trying to look it up, but I cannot remember the title or what journal published it. But there was a study that was released back in the autumn showing that um, they focused on bisexual men because it's easier to focus a study than it is to, to make it broader. But they, they found that it was a non-overlapping group with uh, gay men and straight men. And not just, I mean, obviously, it's, you're, you're talking about a third category. That's fine. But they're talking about a whole raft of, of different properties and measures and, and uh, self-perceptions. And they, they just found that it was um, the, the old model of a continuum from you know, gay through to bisexual to straight. It really does seem to be like three separate distinct categories that just have so much variation within the categories that they appear to overlap. And uh, now, I don't know, there's just, there has been explosion in the past, maybe like two or three years, very, very recent on bisexuality as a distinct category and how we shouldn't just view them as spicy straights or as gay light that there is like there is a distinct category there with unique properties to them and uh i don't know why it took so long and i think in the end i think they just did like a basic like high school math like tukey t test to just prove that they're a distinct category and then they were like look the 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 numbers are there so there there has been this this recent shift in studying bisexuality as its own thing yeah there absolutely has yeah for sure um, it's interesting because often I, I think about, you know, the relationship between bisexual uh, gay men and straight men or other genders. The reality is, is that heterosexuals and, you know, gay men, lesbians have a lot more in common with each other than with bisexuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both mononormative sexual orientations, meaning they're only attracted to one gender where, you know, bisexuals are much more fluid and attracted to multiple genders. Um, and it is a very unique experience. And I think that in betweenness and not being able to be put into one box is, um, you know, this is just my opinion, but what also kind of drives a lot of that biphobia and a lot of their unique experiences in the world that do make them distinct. Um, because people always want to categorize, like our brains just want to do that to make sense of things. And, you know, with bisexuals, it's a lot of you know, hear things like, oh, you're just confused. It's like, well, maybe it's not me that's actually confused. Maybe, you know, the fluidity and the non-binary nature of their sexual identity is what's confusing for other people. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely starting to become a much more uh, common understanding that it is a very unique sexuality. 
You mentioned earlier, and I believe this is probably the, the crux of the, the research that you're looking to do, you know, specifically the experience of bi folks, um, you know, within the workplace. And you mentioned something that really kind of piqued my interest. The thing that really kind of jumped out from what you were saying to me earlier is the idea of being, you know, just by virtue of being bisexual and then being out and then being overly sexualized within a workplace. You know, that must be incredibly difficult in terms of managing colleagues, in terms of managing uh, workplace relationships with, you know, your co-workers. And more importantly, I I think it'd be interesting if you could look at the perspective, and I'm not telling you how to do your study, but I personally <laughs> would be very curious as to the dynamic that's presented by management, so by folks in the management position, because, of course, that relationship between employee and manager uh, is different again, and it would be interesting to see how the sort of over-sexualization of by folks, uh, you know, you know, uh, intertwines with that, from, you know, with that uh, power dynamic. Maybe it's too niche and I need to, you know, sit back and see what comes out of it, but it certainly sparked my uh, my interest. No, it's a really good point. Um, one of the criteria for participation in the study is actually that um, the person has to be in a middle management position. So manager, director, senior director, basically, um, yeah, that middle kind of area. And a big reason for that is because especially, you know, today we're seeing a lot of diversity and EDI initiatives. Uh, and part of a middle manager's job is to implement strategy and uh, EDI and diversity is a strategic kind of vision for a lot of organizations. And so I am interested in that relationship because the, the middle manager reports up and then has people reporting to them. So they're actually in a very interesting position when it comes to power relations because um, they kind of have to be everyone to everything. Uh, and so how do you manage that sexual identity in the context of all of these different relationships, all of these different power dynamics? And within um, professional service firms, that's even more complicated because a lot of times you have uh, owners of the business who you also have a very unique type of relationship to. Um, and the sexualization is certainly a big thing. Um, but the other thing that also comes up is, you know, I myself experienced this and I know from the research that I'm not the only one, um, but a lot of bi erasure takes place. So, you know, people, you might come out to someone and they might say something like, oh, so, you know, you're you're halfway on your way to gay or, oh, I believe that you might be bi. But I had someone tell me once that, you know, they don't believe that bisexual men exist. And so actually hearing a lot of this feedback, um, you know, in relation to your own sexual identity contributes to um, kind of, again, thinking about like, how how are other people perceiving me? How am I experiencing myself in this work environment? That really reminds me, I, I, was, uh, I was hanging out with a friend of mine uh, mm -hmm. and I genuinely forgot that he was bisexual, you know, because he's in a heteronormative relationship. Uh, actually, I have a couple of friends who are mm -hmm. identified bisexual in heteronormative relationships. Um, i.e. straight relationships um, but you know it it's yeah I mean I think for queer folks uh, for for gay folks mm -hmm. um, it is very self-evident <laughs> when you're when you're in the gay relationship you know that's that's certainly that 
I'm wondering then about that, you know, why folks have suffered not just by erasure from the and fetishization from the straight community, but also a degree of eminosity and and exclusion from queer folks as well. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's that's stresses from from both sides. And I bring it up because like I myself genuinely forgot I knew my friend's sexual identity and was momentarily surprised. So, you know, sometimes I know I forget your partner's Vietnamese. Like so, sometimes yeah. things just slip your mind because you just know them. Yeah. And we usually, usually kind of defer to the gender of someone's partner as an indication of their mm-hmm. sexual identity. That's kind of the norm in terms of, you know, how we make those, how we, maybe how we remember or, or what mm-hmm. have you. Um, but obviously with bi people, that's not a very reliable indicator of their sexual identity. And it's interesting that you brought up the point around the animosity from, you know, the broader LGBTQ community, because along with the gender of the partner not being a very um, helpful indicator all the time, bisexuals also have kind of the, you know, the blessing and the curse, let's call it, of blending into um, various environments. Uh, You know, you're totally right. Like there's for a lot of queer people, um, you know, their sexual identity is an embodied marker. There's there's queer codes, queer coding that they kind of give off. But with a lot of bi people, they can be read as either straight or gay. Like you, you cannot necessarily make an assessment. There are no appearance norms for bisexual people, although a lot of bisexual people do use things like, you know, piercings, glasses, hair, you know, even wearing a bi pin to communicate their uh, sexual identity externally. Um, but there's there's kind of a privilege, obviously, that comes with that as well. I have read some things about how, you know, that might also kind of interfere with, you know, it's like, oh, you have this privilege of being in this community where other people, you know, don't necessarily have the privilege to not be so visibly queer. Not that I'm suggesting that anyone should <laughs> not want to be visibly queer. I wanted to pivot to a comment by, I think it was Andrew Scott, uh, the actor who has been in uh, The Stranger, Strangers of Us, no, Stranger, Strange, I, I can't remember the name of the film, it'll come to me later in the show. Um, but he talked about whether or not we should start moving away from the term openly gay. Now, he was specifically talking about actors in acting roles and how, you know, it creates this assumption. And it also begs the question of, you know, that implies that folks are in the closet. Is that still a reality now? But I think in this dynamic, when we're talking about bi folks in the workplace, it kind of begs the question, you know, is being openly bi uh, something that, uh, you know, is what we should be talking about in 2024 or is this a conversation that we really need to leave in the past couple of decades yeah i mean it's another great question um you know i think a lot of the research basically agrees that for uh, queer people you know it is um they have more positive experiences in the workplace when they are out that's kind of you know well-known fact um, but what's interesting about bisexuals is because there's a there's a range of ways that you can identify as bisexual. Uh, like it is, as you spoke about earlier, there's so much diversity within that community. And um, this one author in particular found that being out at work for bisexuals actually might cause more harm than good. And the other reality is, is that 
bisexual people are way less likely to be out at work than lesbian or gay people. So when we're talking about, you know, out bisexuals, unfortunately, I do think that these conversations still need to be happening because they are, you know, lagging behind, for lack of a better word, when it comes to being out, uh, being included at work, feeling safe at work, because, again, a lot of these um, stereotypes and ideologies that are that are going around and because in a lot of ways they don't necessarily always align with a lot of the heteronormative ideas that kind of infiltrate our workplaces, whereas a lot of the more, um, and again, I'm making a huge generalization here, but there's a lot of research saying that, you know, it's great that we have um, gotten to a point where, as you were saying, maybe we don't need to talk about someone who is openly gay. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times those people that we're seeing at, or the very visible people um, have aligned themselves with heteronormativity and it's creating this homonormativity uh, and we're normalizing very specific representations of what it means to be gay. Uh, and that actually forecloses the opportunity for non-normative sexual identities to be visible because they, um, they are, you know, it doesn't match that image of, well, this is what we think a gay person is like. You, you know, I don't know, I like to say sometimes it's like you can be gay, but only if you're our version of gay, only if you fit into this box. Um, and I think that, yeah, for a lot of bisexual people, it's, you know, it's obviously an inherently personal choice and coming out is one that you have to make over and over and over again every time you meet a new person, a new colleague, a new team member. Um, and again, when you don't have those visual cues, when you're not, uh, when you're blending in as straight or gay and your partner isn't a good indicator, it just really makes it much more of a, um, a challenging kind of decision to make. Your comments sort of really resonate. And I think the reason being is there have been this allegation standing against by folks that's essentially pick a lane. And that's an allegation that's that's been resting against them for a long time. And I just find it fascinating, the idea that sort of gay homonormativity is sort of reinforcing that binary of pick a lane. It can be either one, but it must be one or the other. And I just think that that's, that's it's very saddening to hear that even when, you know, Gay normativity is or has been when when gay relationships have been normalized within the broader community that has, in effect, reinforced that binary that's being forced onto uh, by folks. Um, yeah, certainly something to to think about. The last question I had for you is for the folks listening, I am certain, statistically speaking, there is someone driving in their car. Uh, or listening to the podcast available on Spotify. Um, and they are thinking, oh, okay, yeah, this kind of sounds like me. I'm I'm in the middle management. I'm bisexual. I, you know, maybe I'd like to contribute. So what are you looking for for them to be able to contribute? And how do they contribute to your study? Yeah, so there's a few criteria that I'm looking for. So first is that someone identifies as bisexual. And when I say bisexual, I am including all sexual identities that are um, attracted to more than one gender. So um, two-spirit, pansexual, queer, fluid, uh, you name it. Another criteria is that you have to be out to some degree at work. So that could be one colleague, it could be your team, um, but 
you do need to be out at work. Um, third, you need to hold a manager, senior manager, director, some sort of middle management title, uh, and then working in a professional service organization. So that would be something like accounting, law, advertising, banking, finance, consulting. So a really um, broad range there as well. And then the final one is that you consider yourself uh, or you have been identified as a leader within your organization. And I know that's a little bit ambivalent, but it's intended to be. Um, I think a lot of people are leaders. So hopefully that also captures a, a broad group. And to learn more about the study, you can visit www.bisexualleaders.com. And there you will find information about me, the research process, uh, how the study will protect your confidentiality and all of the different uh, components that will go into it. Excellent. Thank you so much. I sincerely hope that some folks listening will reach out and participate. I think until research like this is done and the business community kind of learns of the results, you know, we can't improve until we know what the challenges are. Um, and then be able to adapt from there. So I want to thank you so much for the work you're doing on this. I really want to thank you again, and we will be back just after this. I'd find
Welcome back to Cancri, a home of community media. I forgot who and when it was. Um, but yes, my name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. Just after we'd spoke uh, with Tarlin in the in the interview, um, a really interesting question came up about the sort of context of privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that we actually, you wrote it down on a post-it note. So, so do you want to, do you want to expand yeah. on, on that piece and, and why it's, it's yeah, well- we talked about it for another like 20 minutes, but the, the, the short version, this is actually a concept from sociolinguistics. That's the, uh, the study of how language and society sort of butt up against each other. And in most of the UK, there is you can you can tell somebody's socioeconomic class more or less within five seconds of meeting them just from their accent. You can sometimes even tell what neighborhood they grew up in, sometimes even what street they grew up in just from their accent. So you can actually get a lot out of that. And when they were studying this uh, in the 60s and 70s, they were especially looking at Ireland, the, the details don't matter. But what they were talking about was um, or what they were investigating was there was this one accent that specifically marked people as working on the docks in Cork. And it really marked you as being working class, sort of low education, hard labor, etc. And the question was, why would people openly speak with that accent if they could just imitate somebody else's accent and falsify prestige? Like if you can talk with a posh accent, if you can imitate the queen, why wouldn't you just do that? And the simple answer was actually just within that group, there's prestige involved in using that accent. So um, if you're talking about any society, any group, any social category, any demography, any population, you're going to have internal measures of prestige that sometimes even mark you as being low prestige on the outside. So you know, knowing that facial piercings and clearly artificially colored hair and the the cat room glasses mark you as being a certain type of LGBTQ individual. And some people really don't get along with those folks. Why would you go through that process of marking yourself as such? And the reason why is because within their own circle, that's sort of the the, the prototypical. That is the thing you aspire to. That is what high prestige looks like. And in the end, people interact with people in their own circle. They don't interact with the outside world. They don't care 
what strangers out there in the world who they don't interact with on their daily basis care uh, think about them they they really care about their own circle the people within their communities so they're pushing to sort of aspire upwards to the top of their own category you get these interesting little situations where in some contexts you'd have prestige and privilege and in another context you would have no prestige and privilege so when you're talking about prestige and privilege there is a huge issue of space and time and context that is sometimes missing from the conversation that actually um, the researcher we were just speaking to was trying to capture the idea of what does that look like in the workplace versus what does it look like in, in your personal life? Yeah, and that was that was the missing piece. It reminds me of, um, so Jake works in a very, he uh, works in a plumbing firm. Yes. And 100% code switches. Oh, yeah. You know, it, you know, a part of me is like, I'd love to see just how gay Jake is at the office, but really isn't. And we've talked to folks before about people who can't code switch out of sounding very gay. Yeah. Their yeah. experience of it is is so much so different. Mm -hmm. And I kind of referenced that in the idea of sort of the aminosity, because it is a privilege to be able to not put a target on your own back by mm -hmm. just speaking you know what i mean it's it's not uh it's not great all right well some I, people choose not to like no, that that is also a choice that comes with that that you, you do put that on yourself so that because you don't know who's in your group sometimes you don't know and that that's one of the things about the the, the so-called gay sounding voice is that some people adapt it all the time so that people who are in the closet can find them it's it's complicated and some people choose not to do that like when i'm at work i'm i I was told at my previous job that like one person figured out that I was gay. It's because I used my straight voice because I don't when I'm at work, I'm just there to do my job. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that kind of thing happens. And it's I wasn't really interested in people. Sometimes they put a question mark over me. They can't tell if I'm zesty or just nerdy. Yeah, like, I'm it, in that a gray kind area. Of spice. Is it neurodivergence? Is it queerness? Like what's <laughs> you know, there's some uh -huh. kind of spicy going on there. We just can't figure it out you know yeah. it, it's interesting because queer culture is always about in-group and out-group communication like that's yeah. really i think a, a key thing i want to kind of circle back to you go way way back you've got pennies in the loafers you know what mm. i mean or the hanky code where different mm -hmm. hankies had different things and there was even a tiktok where at a certain uh symbol beat you like do the quick little hand drop and unless you knew to look for it and the girls gays in the days uh, had it nailed down but i think for this generation it really became that small you know thing that mm -hmm. communicates that someone's gay uh, it was it's an interesting topic i can talk about it all day but we don't have time yes. because there has been some policing happening in halifax policing policing i forgot to mention this to you oh okay. so this is new uh this is actually it's not specifically in havocs we're talking lower sackville nova scotia okay now in nova scotia the rcmp responded to a call at a business uh specifically a doctor's offices in sackville where a 39 year old man uh, i'm not gonna uh say any names mm -hmm. um, who was in from lower sackville uh took out the pride flag I defaced the pride flag and was uttering threats toward queer folks and the doctor's office. Now, he has been uh, uh, arrested for uttering threats uh, and specifically, you know, with the charges of mischief and uttering threats, 
uh, but it's very likely that the Crown will look at adding uh, hate motivating um, to sentencing. At a doctor's office? I mean, there was a pride flag outside. You say this like there haven't been ridiculous uh, things that people okay. have protested against. Okay, I thought you meant like he just walked in there and started burying. Like he was the there for a mammogram, not a mammogram. I mean, we could have been there for <laughs> You know, he's uh -huh. there for his, you know. Men do get breast cancer. That's, that's where I, I walk that back. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's actually, not common, but it's not rare either. This is true. We are aware that the new um, sort of legislation, law? Uh, proposed rules and regulations yeah. by Daniel Smith, the premier of Alberta. Um, this touches on sports, it touches on school, it touches on healthcare. There's a whole range of things that uh, she is looking to roll out in the province already. Mm -hmm. Over a thousand people in Calgary have protested uh, in downtown to this response. There's also been protests in Edmonton. And I believe that most of the major queer organizations in Alberta have already issued statements um, decrying this somewhat vague news uh, out of Alberta. We are looking to get some details before diving into it. And one of the things that, because me and you, Sebastian, mm -hmm. yes, do not agree on this matter. Oh, we agree. We agree broadly. It's just the details we disagree on. This is true. But it's yeah. affirmed. Like there are, I can probably count on one hand where me and you have been in a discussion where I'm like, I don't want to talk about this with you. Because uh -huh. it's it's literally a job. We've been we've been talking to each other for 10 years. Yes. Like we put we put married couples to shame. Like we are catty uh -huh. cathies. Uh -huh. Um, and there are very few times where I think we we do not uh, and and may not meet. But I want to look. We're going to reach out to some experts, and mm -hmm. specifically, I want to talk with an expert in competing human rights. Yes, because a lot of this legislation is being penned up as the rights of the parent, mm -hmm. parental rights, mm -hmm. which assumes that the right of the child doesn't matter or yep. is subservient to the parental rights. But in Canada, there's loads of rights that compete with each other. Oh, Your yeah. right to religion versus the right to free speech, freedom of association versus, you know, the right to safety. There's mm -hmm. all of these competing rights. And there is, surprisingly, an academic area of study specifically on competing rights. So I want to, we love an academic. Uh, and we're going to bring someone in and talk about in Canada, how do you weigh up these two things against each other as an insight as to where this subject might fall? Because right now, Canada hasn't judicially decided anything. They've come in guns blazing with notwithstanding clauses. So there hasn't really been a discussion on that sort of legal element of it and how they are weighted. It just really hasn't really happened so much. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm really curious about. We will also reach out to some of those queer organizations in Alberta, specifically folks that work with students. They get a sense of, and me and you have, have, have this is an area we can agree. Laws yeah. and rules come out all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They may and or may not be enforced in the way people think they will. Yeah. They, you know, and... And the actual impact, you know, could be one thing. But most importantly, there is a culture shift that happens yeah. when law changes. And there is a feeling in the room when you step into a space after there's been major changes like this. I want to get a sense 
how folks around in Alberta are feeling right now. Right. With just that that notice out there, I suspect there's probably some fear, probably not a lot of clarity or information. But I am curious to see what impact it's already had mm-hmm. um, before, obviously, the details coming out. But we shall see. We're going to reach out to folks and try and iron it out. Um, I do have Eurovision news, but I don't think we're going to get to it. Yeah, we're out of time. Which is fine. Um, <laughs> they've they've confirmed all of the um, semi-finalists. Mm-hmm. Um, which includes Ooh. a drag race judge. Don't know if you knew that. That I think is pretty new for this week. Um, drag race judge added, but we did run out of time. We're going to be playing out with Bebop by uh, A Trozo um, on the big on the album Big Cat. Uh, I have been Luke Smith, and I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening.